0: Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan, and of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. If you don't want to look for all those things, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, B, B- R I O N, McClanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll see all my social media buttons. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show there by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support or just click on the support button at the top of the page. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. Anything is greatly appreciated. You can also get there uh, book plates. So if you want to get my autograph on one of your books, one of the books that I've written, you can purchase those there as well. It's really easy and I'll autograph them and send them out to you. So you've got my book plates there. Also, at that page, BrianMcClanahan.com, you got a little button that says Shop. Click on that. It'll take you out and get all my Brian McClanahan Show logo gear. A lot of great stuff. T-shirts, coffee cups, uh, wall clocks even. I mean, cool stuff. So, you got that. And, of course, the best way to support the Brian McClanahan Show, though, is going to mclanahanacademy.com. Academy.com. It's always free to enroll. Click on that Enroll. It's free. Button. You click on that. And almost immediately after doing so, you will get an email that contains a link to my free class, 10 Myths of American History. So all you got to do is enroll, click that thing, enroll, you get a link to that free class. So enrolling now gets you something awesome, which is a free class. So uh, enroll at McClanahan Academy. You get the best deals on forthcoming courses. There's also a little nugget there if you do enroll. So going out and enroll, uh, It's it's a great way to support the show. And of course, you get something out of it, too. And you can always support the show by going to LearnTrue, LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. T-R-U-E, Learn True That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Uh, if you uh, purchase a membership through that link, of course, you help the show and you also get great stuff. Over 20 classes on history, philosophy, economics, a lot of good stuff. So LearnTrueHistory.com. It's a wonderful way to support the Brian McClanahan Show as well. All right. This is a listener generated episode. It's a it has to do with an article that was in Chronicles magazine. And I think and uh, several people sent this to me, so I can't just pin it on one person and say, "Yeah, this person sent it," so I'm going to read an email with that. Several people sent me this article in in different ways, whether it was on social media or uh, through email. <clears throat> but it has to do with tariffs, and it has to do with an interesting look at tariffs. This is a big issue, and it's a big issue in the antebellum period. It's a big issue now. We see that Trump and China and NAFTA and GATT and all these things, we're talking about tariffs all the time. We're talking about economics, uh, international economics, and how that works. Are tariffs constitutional? Are they not constitutional? These are big questions, and they've been big questions in American history for a very long period of time. In fact, you go all the way back to the ratification of the Constitution. You go all the way back to George Mason trying to prohibit what he called navigation laws, because he believed that if the general government was able to pass navigation laws, it would damage the South, it would damage the Southern economy. Because, of course, navigation laws, their tariffs, would have been detrimental to a free trade South. And so even before you had John C. Calhoun stand up and argue against tariffs, you had Southerners arguing against tariffs before that. Now, you had Southerners arguing against tariffs when Hamilton presented his economic plans to the first Congress. There were Southerners saying, wait a second here. You know, I don't know if we want these things. These are detrimental to the South and the Southern economy. The South being an agricultural section that relied primarily on uh, imported manufactured goods for luxury items. Now, it's also clear that the South... Was being taxed. You had a carriage tax that were primarily uh, was inflicted on the South. This was Hamilton. Um, so this is a this has been a big issue in American history for a very long time since since the Constitution was ratified, and you could say even before that, because Southerners were keenly aware that tariffs would be uh, disproportionately applied to the South. They would pay the lion's share of the tariffs in terms of. Um, the fact that they didn't they didn't manufacture much now we can look at the Jefferson administration and I'll talk about that for a second in, in a minute I should say and what Jefferson said about tariffs in the in his second term it's interesting what he said about tariffs particularly the embargo um, so <clears throat> the question is what is the benefit of tariffs now constitutionally and I've talked about tariffs before on this podcast so i'm going I'm going to uh, cover some territory I've already covered, but constitutionally, are, are tariffs legal? Well, certainly, if you look at the Constitution, the general government is allowed to pass tariffs. I mean, Mason's dream of, of prohibiting navigation laws failed. So Congress is constitutionally able to pass tariffs. It doesn't say what kind of tariff. It doesn't say how much. It doesn't say what percentage. So then you have this debate, can Congress pass revenue-only tariffs, Or can Congress pass protectionist tariffs? I mean, what is the difference? And that's a very good question. It's really unclear. When Calhoun was was arguing for a tariff following the War of 1812, he generally said that these were revenue-producing tariffs, and that's generally what the United States had, anyways, up until the 1830s. When they had a tariff, it was designed to raise revenue. It wasn't really a protective measure. It wasn't designed necessarily to protect American manufacturers from foreign competition. And one of the reasons is because New England was also opposed to tariffs. If you go back and look at Daniel Webster in 1812, one of the things that he was highly critical of the Madison administration about were the protective measures that were being used against the British because of what they called at that time the carrying trade. Massachusetts and New England was, were commercialists, meaning that they were engaged in international commerce, And part of that, or most of that, was actually shipping. So by passing tariffs and having these very large protective measures, that hurt New England. And so Daniel Webster in 1812 is railing against the Madison administration because they have these tariffs, these protective tariffs. And he's saying this is destroying New England. Now, Daniel Webster later on, when you get to the 1830s, would be a protectionist, and that's because Daniel Webster was always a New England sectionalist. He was never a nationalist. He was a New England sectionalist. But certainly in the 18-teens, Daniel Webster was against protective tariffs, as was most of New England. You look at uh, Jefferson's embargo, and the stiffest opposition to that embargo came from New England, also from Virginia, and the constitutional purists known as the Quids, people like John Randolph of Roanoke. So you had this kind of uneasy alliance at that point against the tariff with constitutional purists like the Virginians. And see, this is the important thing to note about this. The Virginians were not basing it on anything other than, at that point, what the Constitution can and cannot do, what it does, not, and, what it does and does not authorize. Whereas New England was looking at it as a purely economic uh, motivation. You know, they, they were concerned about their own wallets, about their own pocketbook, and what tariffs would do to New England overall and the New England economy. So there's two different ways to look at this. Now, uh, as we go forward, of course, we get to the 1830s. Well, I should say this. Let's let's go to after the war. 1816, you get Calhoun arguing for the bonus bill, which also included... He he, he was also arguing for a tariff. And so we had a revenue-only tariff. Now, what point do we get from a revenue tariff to a protectionist tariff is the question. Well, you know by the 1820s, the general government passed the Tariff of Abominations in 1828, so what South Carolina called it. And it was a protectionist measure. Now it got essentially over that quarter threshold. I think when you start looking at revenue and then protection, generally the idea is when you get above about a quarter, um, you start getting to something that's considered more protection. And if you target specific articles, then you're talking about protection. Um, and this is what the British were doing Before the American War for Independence, they were targeting specific articles. They were saying, for example, uh, you know, wool or lead or glass. uh, These things are going to be taxed. And they're going to be taxed at a higher rate. The idea was to protect British manufacturers of those items against, say, French or uh, foreign manufacturers of those particular items. So when you get to a certain point where you have a higher tariff, and it's, I mean, if you look at historically what we're talking about, it's about a quarter where they were concerned. So um, when you get to that point, you start saying, well, wait a second here. Now you're artificially raising the price of a good just so that Americans can produce it and they can make it and manufacture it and we will buy American because it's now gotten cost prohibitive. If it's If it's less than about a quarter, Americans will pay a little bit more <clears throat> And uh, they won't really worry about the uh, the Made in America label. I mean, this is, you go back to the 1980s, 1970s. I remember in the 1980s, there was a big deal. You had these little Made in America tags on everything and uh, Made in the USA is what it said. And, of course, Sam Walton with Walmart. I mean, this is one thing that Sam Walton made a, made a lot of money on because he decided he was only going to purchase for a long time. Made in America items, where he's gonna, he was going to put those things on marquee, right? We've got made in America. Now Walmart is driving the made in China. So it's amazing how things change. But, uh, you know, that was a big deal back in the 80s. Uh, I still knew people in the 90s that, uh, I mean, that made homemade clothing because they would buy uh, ma- American manufactured textiles, and then they would make the clothes because they wanted to ensure. That they uh, only had made in America clothing, right? So I mean, this was this these these were all Union people, and this was all a big deal. I mean, so where where do tariffs? Wh- what do tariffs do? One of the arguments, of course, for tariffs when you get when you start moving forward, and the way that they start being sold, is that they protect American jobs and they protect Americans. It's not just about corporate welfare anymore, because, I mean, that's originally what it was. Look, we're going to protect the tariffs. And they did argue, well, I mean, we're going to help American men. We're going to help American workers. But that really wasn't the case because they didn't care about that. What they cared about was helping their constituents, meaning their, their people that were their big donors, essentially. The people with money. And so tariffs were a form of corporate welfare. They still are. The tariff The tariff debate is still about corporate welfare. Uh, whether it's going to be a low tariff or a high tariff, it depends on what, how that's going to help the American uh, companies that are benefited or burdened from these tariffs. But initially it was corporate welfare. You had uh, iron manufacturers, you had uh, textile manufacturers. These type of people were helped by the tariffs. And so nobody really talked about workers until they had to try to sell a tariff on a moral means. Uh, well, it's going to help American workers. We're going to help Americans we're going to help our own people. So that's an interesting argument. Essentially, that's what this Chronicle's article gets into. It gets into that particular argument. All the other economic stuff is irrelevant. Whether it hurts people, whether it doesn't help, whether it helps people, in terms of whether it raises prices or lowers prices, those are all academic arguments to some people. It doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, what's really important is about helping Americans. It's about helping Americans. It's a nationalist type of argument because it doesn't really matter where these factories are built, even though we know the factories for years were built in New England and the Midwest. And so was that really helping Southerners? So you always had that kind of, was it really a national uh, a national economic policy or more of a sectional economic policy? On the other hand, is free trade. A national economic policy or more of a sectional economic policy. Both have... Merits. I mean, you could say, well, free trade does help everybody because not everyone's employed in manufacturing. You could also say that manufacturing, by, by having that, helps a substantial number of people because people are in manufacturing. But for most of American history, more Americans have not been manu- have not been in manufacturing than have been in it. So the article, the economic, the economic benefit to not having tariffs and lower prices on things has helped more people. Than just having tariffs and having people in manufacturing now, but that doesn't get into a couple of, of, of uh, interesting arguments that people will make about tariffs, and that's this particular Chronicles article. So let me let me talk about this, um, and it's it's an interesting way to sell it, and frankly, it's a, it's a strong argument, particularly if you're a nationalist. If you're a nationalist, this is a very strong argument. The title of the Article is protectionism as a path to piety. And it's written by John Howling. I don't know Mr. Howling, uh, but um, it's it, the, the subtitle is answering the parasitical uh, economists. Economists, if I could speak this morning, the parasitical economists, and essentially a parasital is um, someone who slaughters a family member. So he's saying essentially the economists that are arguing against tariffs are, are are taking this out on a family member, meaning American workers. It's like your family. Why would you kill them? There's no virtue in that. And so he first is very critical of Frederick Bastier, and uh, he talks about Bastier's candlestick makers' petition, which was is often cited as the definitive argument against protectionism. And then as Trump started talking about tariffs, there was a satirical piece produced by Mark Perry. Mark Perry is professor a professor of economics at the University of Michigan, Flint. And he is a uh, scholar with the American Enterprise Institute, AEI. And he he changed the language of the bastille petition and updated it for the modern times. Now, what's interesting about this is that there was also another question that was posed to this. Have any Southerners really ever produced a strong summary of Bastier? And yes, there was one. And it's a person that um, you wouldn't, nobody really knows anything about. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't go out and find this person right off. I mean, people say, you know, Calhoun is tariffs. Southerners, one Southerner produced a very interesting summary of Bastier. Her name, her name, is Louisa S. McCord. Louisa S. McCord was a poet from South Carolina. In fact, she translated Bastier. She also wrote wonderful poetry. But she's an antebellum poet. She was a contemporary of people like Henry Timrod and William Gilmore Sims. In fact. They really admired her poetry, and when you, you know Henry Timrod is a poet laureate, often called the poet laureate of Confederacy, and Timrod's poetry has been updated by Bob Dylan and turned into an album. Uh, William Gilmore Sims was one of the best known poets in America in the antebellum period. Before he wrote what are often called the anti-Uncle Tom's Cabin novels, when when uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin came out. A lot of Southerners picked up their pens and started writing refutations of that book and started defending the South. And so Sims wrote one of those. And so he's often vilified for this. But he was a very good writer, wrote tr- tremendous romance novels. If you, When I say romance, I'm not talking about uh, you know romantic affection. It was a romantic way of looking at the past, similar to uh, James Fenimore Cooper. I mean, if you like James Fenimore Cooper and the Leatherstocking Tales, you would love William Gilmore Sims. So, uh, Louisa McCord had a wonderful defense of Frederick Bastier and free trade, and she's from South Carolina. Free trade in her mind was a, uh, was a policy that would help the South and help the most people in the United States. Uh, but you have a Southerner translating Bastier, which was really interesting. So, uh, Mr. Howling says, you know, these libertarian arguments, they're clever. They're clever, they're reasonable. And he says, but then he says, so reasonable they border on insanity. As Chesterton wrote in Orthodoxy, the madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason. So what what Howling is saying here is, well, libertarians are just too reasonable. They They don't actually think about the other side of their arguments. They don't think about the impact of their ideas on continuity in society. They don't think about the impact of their ideas on the American family, the path to piety. That's what he's saying. He's saying piety is a part of justice. Justice is one of the reasonable natural virtues. Justice is giving what is owed. Piety is giving what is owed, to father and fatherland. More broadly, piety involves the relationship one has with the natural world. Or as Weaver suggests, and this is Richard Weaver, in a 1958 modern age essay, it signifies an attitude towards things which are immeasurably larger and greater than oneself without which man is an insufferably brash, conceited, and frivolous animal. So he's saying piety is part of tradition. Piety is part of culture. Um, now, he uses the Platonic dialogue of Euthyphro, um, which um, is interesting. He gets into a Greek defense, essentially, of tariffs. He gets into a Greek defense, or a Greek attack, I should say, on the libertarian Bastier position on tariffs and trade. And he does so because he's saying that tariffs are a defense of what he calls family, folk, and fatherland. To live piously is to accept one's place in this structure, which entails favoring the near over the far. This includes favoring one's family and countrymen over foreigners. Favoring the far off over the nearby is impious. Thus, importing foreign workers to do the work that one's neighbors could do is impious. Exporting work to foreign lands that could be done by one's neighbors is impious. We owe something to our father simply because he is our father, and to our fatherland simply because it is our fatherland. Now, so he's arguing, essentially, about family about the family structure of the American family. And he's saying, look, tariffs, it doesn't matter. The economic arguments are irrelevant. What matters is what we owe to our family, our folk, and our fatherland. Now, this is essentially a one-people argument about America. It's a nationalist argument. I mean, he's hes making a nationalist case here. We have one people. We're going to try to support this one people. It's, he's, he's favoring a blue collar type of nationalism in America. It's the same thing that Trump capitalized on in 2016. There are people, the forgotten man, that are being left behind in this new economy. Now, on the other hand, you can say that manufacturing is thriving. I mean, uh, that uh, manufacturing jobs, even before, you know, the manufacturing jobs weren't necessarily disappearing, certain types of manufacturing jobs were. But are we favoring, I mean, what kind of economy are we favoring? Uh, is the manufacturing economy necessarily the best for America? Or is uh, should these people diversify and do something else? Uh, get into a different type of economy. Um, now, when you look at this, of course, you're talking about people that don't necessarily want to go out and get a college degree. But you don't have to have a college degree even to benefit in a non-manufacturing economy. People do it all the time. They have to get certain skills. They have to learn certain things. But then you have uh trade fields that are unfilled because people don't want to do them. And we need people to do these these jobs as well. They're not manufacturing, but they're high paying jobs. I mean, look, a person that goes out and works in HVAC is going to make six figures. And they're not they're not manufacturing automobiles. So where is the greatest benefit comes down to this? Is is it still rejecting? I mean this is where the question SBS is rejecting tariffs, protective tariffs. Now I mean I think we can make a very interesting argument that if we had higher tariffs, we could have lower taxes if the general government would follow through on that. That's that's the real issue, though. This is when you get into things like uh, the fair tax, which is a national sales tax. Is that going to produce the situation where we can lower taxes overall because we have a sales tax that would offset income income tax? Can we get rid of the income tax and just have a fair sales tax? I mean, look, a, a fair tax... Is a tax on consumption. If you don't buy a lot of stuff, well, then you're not going to pay a lot of taxes. I mean, this is this is the way it works. We have a consumption-driven society, though, so the people that consume more are going to pay more taxes. And of course, would you protect? Would you say that you don't have to pay a tax on used items? Like we, I mean, would that be uh, something that we don't have to pay a tax on? It's like a garage sale. You don't pay a tax on. I mean, you're supposed to, but you don't. So how would we how would we work this out? But his, 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 uh, his argument, I think that paragraph is a really good, par- strong paragraph. So we're protecting our family. We're protecting the fatherland. We're protecting our people. This is an old Democrat. When I say old Democrat, I'm talking about, you know, 19th century, late 19th, early 20th century argument uh, for protection. Uh, it's also, the Republicans use this too. Uh, in the late 19th century. They started dusting off this. I mean, pr- Republicans were the party of protection for a long period of time. And then you get, of course, the, the Democrats take that over. Um, but it's, it's an argument for protection. And it's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting argument because it's based on a, a social dynamic rather than economic, because it's not about reason and what's going to be reasonable, what's going to help the economy. It's not about any of that. It's about people. And I think that that's how tariffs have always been sold, about people. We're going to help people. He says, piety obliges us to favor our families and neighbors over cheaper blue jeans, smartphones, hybrid cars, solar panels, and washing machines. It's piety which does that. So who cares about the price of these things? Piety. We have an obligation. It doesn't matter about how much these things cost. It only matters about if we're protecting Our family from foreign competition because they think it's immoral not to do that. What's interesting is Jefferson actually used the exact same argument during the embargo, and I'm gonna. This is from Drew McCoy's *The Elusive Republic*, and he says, "Quote: Speaking of Virginia in early 1809, Jefferson noted that he could quote affirm with confidence." That were free intercourse opened again tomorrow, she would never again import one half of the coarse goods, which she has now done, done down to the date of the edicts. Here in Virginia, he wrote to John Adams several, several years later, We do little in, in the fine way, but in coarse and middling goods a great deal. Every family in the country is a manufactory within itself, and is very generally able to make within itself all the stouter and middling stuffs for its own clothing and household use. We consider a sheep for every person in the family as sufficient to clothe it, in addition to the cotton, hemp, and flax which we raise ourselves. The economy and thriftiness resulting from our household manufacturers, Jefferson concluded, are such that they will never again be laid aside. And nothing more salutary for us has ever happened than the British obstructions to our demands for their manufacturers. Restore free intercourse when they will, their commerce with us will have totally changed its form and the articles we shall in future want from them will not exceed their own consumption of our produce. McCoy says the embargo Jefferson thus contended had finally forced Americans to realize their full potential in household manufacturing, a momentous achievement that had always been implicit in the revolutionary impulse. The important point for Jefferson was that this breakthrough eliminated the basis for the chronically unfavorable balance of trade with England that had traditionally crippled the republic. So, the benefit to the embargo, Jefferson is arguing, is that it had a salutary effect on the family. The same argument that Howling is making. So we have these two very interesting arguments. We have an embargo which encourages the family to be independent. A sheep for every person is enough to clothe them. Now, Americans aren't going to do this. We're not going to go out and shear a sheep and then weave the, the product into our own coarse Items when he, he he said you know a lot of people needed these coarse items most Americans didn't wear cotton in the 18th century and 19th century they wore coarse fabrics which were linen and uh, well I mean that could be made out of cotton but linen and wool woolen items wool was still primarily uh, the the uh, material of choice for clothing wool uh, and we look at that and think oh my gosh that would be miserable. I mean, because we we love our cotton and our synthetic uh, fibers now, which are much more comfortable to wear. It's comfortable on your skin. But wool was still the primary article of, of uh, of choice when it came to clothing. But Jefferson is making the same argument. This is going to help the American family. It's going to help Virginia, his country. It's going to help Virginia be independent of anything else. And it doesn't matter if we have free trade. The benefit of the of the embargo was that it forever created a natural manufacturing base in Virginia for coarse items and household items and your clothing. It made people independent. Now, it's a little different argument in this way, that Americans with a tariff aren't going to be independent. Again, we're not going to make our own clothing. We're going to buy American, which might make America more independent. We look at this all the time when there's a situation where we need something and Americans don't manufacture it anymore. We're beholden to a foreign government or a foreign entity to get those things that we might need. And that can be very dangerous. If we're manufacturing these things ourselves, well, then of course, uh, for in the United States, well, then of course we don't need to rely on anyone. And it could be essential items like medicine. It could be essential military items. Um, There is a a uh, military item that the United States uses, the United States Navy uses, to detect uh, foreign submarines. And uh, at some point, American, we don't manufacture these things. We have to have a a joint. operation or a joint manufacturing agreement with a foreign entity to do it and that foreign entity is no longer going to do it. So we have to figure out how we're going to manufacture these things. But so we have this. I mean we have this problem. If we're relying on foreigners and this is what Howling is saying. look, when you rely on foreigners, it's it's immoral to do so. It's immoral. To rely on foreigners, this is cast down your buckets where you are. This is Booker T. Washington saying, look, don't hire foreigners. Hire hire black Americans because they're right here. We've been around you for a couple hundred years. So this is the argument that's been made over time in America about helping out Americans. That paying a little more for something is okay because it's helping Americans. It's a very powerful argument. um, And it's not a pure economic argument. Because pure economics would say, well, this is bad because it's driving up the price. That's going to have a ripple effect. It's going to create problems. Uh, people won't have as much disposable income, et cetera, et cetera. So we have these two very interesting. One is a moral argument, one is an economic argument. And which one you side with depends on your perspective on society. There is a balance. I mean, I think this is where Calhoun was arguing there's a balance. You can have a revenue-producing tariff, which is going to have – it will protect some manufacturers – And it will have a beneficial effect because it's going to lower taxes where you don't have to to dive into this protection, which is going to hurt a large number of Americans in their pocket, which is important. They can't hire as many people. They can't do as much stuff. So you're going to have that. If somehow you could have a strike, a balance between what's often called fair trade. I mean, this is where you get into fair trade, trade, uh, and then not protection. Maybe that would work. And this is where we have an argument or a conversation about, what the tariff should be that would make it fair, is a protective tariff even constitutional or not? Uh, if it doesn't benefit and burden all equally, then you could say it's not a, it's not in the general welfare of the union. Uh, this is Calhoun's argument about it, against a protective tariff. So we have all these interesting arguments, and I think at the end of the day, it depends on your stance and what you think about whether you're a purist, an economic purist, or you're not. Um, so I've given you, I've outlined the argument. I think it's a really interesting, a very strong argument, by the way. And um, you know, Jefferson would say the same exact thing to a point. So, what does that mean for the future? Well, uh, tariff issue is still going to be a, a big issue. Uh, we had the '90s. We had even currently Pat Buchanan saying tariffs, you know, built America. Buchanan has always been someone who argues for a, a fair trade. I mean, this is Ross Perot in the 1990s. Um, so you have this certain streak of it's not populism, it's uh, pro America. I mean, it's it's pro national America. So uh, should we look at it that way, or should we look at things regionally? Should, if we if we decentralize, could we have regional areas that maybe manufacturing stronger, and it's not in other areas, and we do different things, and we and we work on doing things that are the best for that particular region or area? I mean, again, it's one size fits all. Is that necessarily good for America? This is this is a, a a pressing question. Should we have a one size fits all economic policy? Should we have a one size fits all social policy? America was never designed as a national state. It's a federal federal republic, and so re, maybe regional government. This is what the the southern agrarians are saying. Maybe we need regional governments, and, and the regional economy would would be paramount. And then this is you know we have the farming area in the south, we have the manufacturing area in the north, and maybe we just need regional economies. And we have a central authority to do very specific things. Well, gee, that was the original Federal Republic. This is why it was argued this way. Because it would be best for all. Because everything, I mean, you have a large entity, you need to have some flexibility in that large political entity. So, hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time. (laughs)